In our first two episodes on Romeo and Juliet, we said this play is intensely aware that love and loss, desire and death are inextricably connected. In this episode, Simon Palfrey, Professor of English at the University of Oxford, discusses three speeches from the play that share this tragic awareness, but which also display the passionate energies of the two characters Professor Palfrey calls the most intelligent in the play, Juliet and Mercutio. This speech takes place in Act 1, as Romeo, Benvolio and Mercutio are on their way to sneak into the Capulet's party. Romeo is afraid that this evening will lead to some dark future consequence, for, as he says, I dreamt a dream tonight. His mention of a dream prompts this fantastical speech from Mercutio. His friends dismiss it afterwards, Romeo saying, Thou talkst of nothing, while Benvolio says, This wind blows us from ourselves. But for audiences, this speech can prove one of the most memorable, cryptic, and even frightening moments of the play. Oh, then I see Queen Mab hath been with you. She is the fairy's midwife, and she comes in shape no bigger than an agate stone on the forefinger of an alderman, drawn with a team of little atomi over men's noses as they lie asleep. Her wagon spokes made of long spinner's legs, the cover of the wings of grasshoppers, her traces of the smallest spider web, her collars of the moonshine's watery beams, her whip of cricket's bone, the lash of film, her wagoner, a small grey-coated gnat, not half so big as a round little worm, pricked from the lazy finger of a maid. Her chariot is an empty hazelnut, made by the joiner squirrel or old grub, time out of mind the fairies' coachmakers. And in this state she gallops night by night through lovers' brains, and then they dream of love. On courtiers' knees that dream on curtsies straight, or lawyers' fingers who straight dream on fees, or ladies' lips who straight on kisses dream, which off the angry mab with blisters plagues, because their breaths with sweetmeats tainted are. Sometimes she gallops o'er a courtier's nose, and then dreams he of smelling out a suit, and sometime comes she with a tithe-big's tail, tickling a parson's nose as he lies asleep, then he dreams of another benefice. Sometimes she driveth o'er a soldier's neck, and then dreams he of cutting foreign throats, of breeches, ambuscados, Spanish blades, of healths five fathom deep, and then anon drums in his ear at which he starts and wakes, and, being thus frighted, swears a prayer or two, and sleeps again. This is that very mab that plats the manes of horses in the night, and bakes the elf-locks in foul sluttish hairs which once untangled much misfortune bodes. This is the hag, when maids lie on their backs, that presses them and learns them first to bear, making them women of good carriage. This is she. The reason I've chosen this speech is because is it's, it's a very famous and celebrated speech, which seems to add almost nothing to the play, I mean, in this, apart from being a, a sort of tour de force of imagination. And it's a speech that is, is equally almost never cut from performances. I think often it's, it's performed just because it's, it's, it's vivid and, and a great showpiece. But I think that Mercutio is a far more pregnant figure than usually understood, in a sense more pregnant with, with the play world. 
I think it's just so for two main reasons, which is we see in this play. First, it's he he sort of establishes the very the sort of literally dangerous understanding of language and sex, which the play has. It's kind of it's intimate feeling for heady minds and explosive privacy. And second, I think Mercutio sort of expresses these passions, and it becomes Juliet's purpose to embody and and to channel. So, I think Mercutio can be understood to exist in in a kind of rival play a sort of virtual thing that grows out of his witticism so i was saying earlier about how he's 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 sacrificed halfway through the play and this part of this is because he's already articulating a a, a rival play this is epitomized in in the queen map speech now it's a classic shakespearean construction if you like um, with these conceits and fables tumbling in one out of another and he offers a, a rival version of love and creation a rival aesthetic to say romeo's borrowed lyricism or Juliet's lucidity, a rival idea of how the world can be made and remade simply in the eyes of a lover. So it's essentially a tale of Genesis tracing the spirit of desire and inception. And the vision is most obviously childlike. It's anthropomorphic use of vegetable and insect life. It's magnifying or, or say, quickening of a natural world usually thought too small to describe or too static to command interest. And I read all this sort of stuff. And it, it, it reminds me of those early Disney cartoons, zooming into an ant's nest or a cricket's body and finding an alternative world. But the speech, for all its childlike brilliance, is also one of escalating violence. So what begins as an image of diminutive, tiny charm soon turns into an anatomized or brutalized body. Magnification becomes eviscoration. Um, promising nothing but a, a skeleton, the word there, atomy, meaning a, a skeleton. And after a while, he envisages nature as a sort of rapidly enveloping web, as the cell, like cells dividing and subdividing and conquering by various kinds of violence or evacuation or dismembering. So you notice the wagon spokes made of long spinner's legs, cover from the wings of grasshoppers, a whip from the bones of crickets, and then it's a little wonder that this, so, so this idea of taking the, the, the natural world and repurposing it with your own slightly dangerous or, or, or slightly troubling purposes. So it's a little wonder that this torturous dream vision mutates into a, a, a sort of obscure paranoid nightmare. So here, sometimes she driveth or a soldier's neck and then dreams he of cutting foreign throats, of breaches, ambuscados, Spanish blades, hell's fire fathom deep, and then anon drums in his ears, which he starts and wakes, and being thus frighted, swears a prayer or two and sleeps again. You say, where is this coming from? And the idea here is that I think that Mab is, is not a harmless fairy. Here, for example, she's seeding dreams of war and conquest, the violence of seafaring imperialism, death upon death um, from treachery or execution, cutting the foreign throats, or ambush, the word ambuscados meaning ambush, or drowning being five fathoms deep. And something like the violence of Verona becomes kind of pan-geographic, pan-Mediterranean, like a microcosm of geopolitical terror. You go to sleep here and your nightmare either remembers battles abroad or, or, or almost engenders battles abroad. And so if Mercutio here is sort of constructing his own rival cosmos, it's one in which metaphoric language takes the place of bodies and action and even motive. But then his fantasy eventually turns into exactly what he would escape, misogyny, 
physical disgust, the invisible seas of life turned ugly and malevolent. So he says, this is that very mab that plaits the manes of horses in the night and bakes the elk locks in foul sluttish hairs, which once untangled much misfortune bodes. This is the hag when maids lie on their backs that presses them and learns them first to bear, making the women of good carriage. And so we've got the the fairy tale wagon with which the speech began has mutated into the good carriage of unwanted pregnancy, and Mab has metamorphosed into a devilish succubus. So there's this effect of clairvoyance in everything Mercutio says. His visions and curses work telepathically and live beyond him in others. And so, for example, Romeo begs him, peace, peace, and Benvolio complains that his words blow us from ourselves. But they're, they're sort of right and in, in, in that Romeo is is not being blown from himself, but strangely into himself. So this speech gathers a kind of magical energy in that the moment that Mercutio stops speaking, Romeo confesses that his mind misgives and the, the, the night revels to which Mercutio is leading him are going to expire the term of a, dis, of a despised life. And so Queen Mab becomes, becomes a kind of midwife of violence, turning desire into death. I think that, that all this the stuff about the, the closeness of the imagination at work here, the plaiting the manes of horses in the night, the courtier's knees, the lawyer's fingers, the lady's lips, the blister's plagues, all this sort of stuff, the kind of magnification it gives, sort of as though you've got this, this, this sort of microscope upon the tiniest movements of body, I think it showcases the, the terrors and perhaps the charisma of a truly Shakespearean imagination. And by that I mean a mind. That, and a vision that cannot rest in what's merely apparent, that cannot help seeing what lies beneath, that, that cannot resist looking so closely at apparent beauty that it begins to look like horror. And Mercutio's X-ray vision is in some ways the play's. This dialogue comes from the famous balcony scene in Act 2, when Juliet steps outside and speaks to herself, not knowing that Romeo is listening in the garden below. Juliet's words reveal the strength of her newfound passion for Romeo, as well as her startling ability to imagine a different relationship to the world in which she's grown up, although that new relationship might prove difficult to attain. Oh, Romeo, Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Shall I hear more or speak at this? "'Tis but thy name that is mine enemy. "'Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. "'What's Montague? "'It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face. "'Oh, be some other name belonging to a man. "'What's in a name? "'That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet.' So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection that he owes without that title. Romeo doth thy name, and for thy name, which is no part of thee, I give all 
myself. I take thee at thy word. Call me but love, and I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I never will be Romeo. This would is kind of a, an amazing moment. It, it's a very simple moment in some ways, but it's it's the most famous moment in the play, and it has a fair claim to be the most famous moment not only in Shakespeare but in all plays, perhaps rivaled only by Hamlet's "To be or not to be" speech. Now, firstly, I want to sort of situate the the, the, the speech in in a sense scenically. So this is the first moment that Juliet truly speaks to herself. So on the one hand, that might suggest we're getting a moment here where where Juliet is expressing her inner thoughts. But even if it's it's spoken out loud, it's overheard. But what if it's inward thought and still overheard? Again, this question of the play thinking about the ambivalence of of freedom, the difficulty of freedom. But of course, this moment is also basically one of simple excitement and anticipation. At last I'm alone, at last I can speak. Now, it's no accident that this moment should herald the most famous line, a Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Okay, because it's the first full line spoken by Juliet to herself. Now, the first, the line's often misheard or misinterpreted so as to mean, where is Romeo? Where are you? Rather than why or with what dire consequences he is named Romeo. It's likely that Shakespeare recognised potential ambiguity. He could have written why you call Romeo instead of wherefore. And, and that he doesn't do this allows us, I think, legitimately to hear the question we feel sure she is thinking, even as it were inside a different question. Where art thou, Romeo? So her words express the wish we all share in and the presence we all believe in. He is here. Now, the crucial thing here is how Juliet is speaking to different audiences, herself, audience, unknown audience. And this is how, this suggests how her speaking is always kind of agitated with imminence, with things about to happen. It's anticipatory in its very setup. She doesn't just speak what she already knows, Juliet, right? She doesn't just say finished thoughts. Often by the time her speech has ended, she's changed or the speech elicits or engineers change. So what I'm saying there is that the way in which the speech is set up is doubly heard and doubly addressed, and she doesn't realise that, means that the speech has potentials which she, as it were, has to catch up to. So the speech is moving ahead of her and bringing her with it. Another puzzle about this speech is that Juliet bemoans his Christian name rather than his surname. This might seem ridiculous because it's Montague, of course, it's the problem. Now, the answer here is that Romeo is so much more intimate to Juliet than Montague could ever be. The sound of his name is beautiful to her, the more so in English with its adjacent size, O, separated only by the personal pronoun, me, O, me, O. This, the, the relatively tinny and adult Montague couldn't do, couldn't do this at all. So as it is, Romeo, thrice spoken, gathers a charge of eroticised wordplay. As one sense, that is, her, responsible, her, her sort of rejection of the name, is subverted by another sense, her powerful feeling for the name. Now, then we get the actual what, what she's doing with the words. So, typically of Juliet's speech, they're very close to her, physically close, um, intimate to her emergent sensuality. So, she, she traces his body in a kind of imaginative blazon, hand, foot, face, um, getting closer. She says, my ears have yet not drunk a hundred words of thy tongue's uttering, yet I know the sound. So the sensory confusion here, ears drinking, 
expresses a kind of synesthesia as all her senses blend into a single excitement. Now, this is consistent with the basic purpose of Juliet in the play, or one of her basic purposes, to see through or exist before the divisions which separate experience from enjoyment. And her relish in the sound is, all the, is felt all the more because it returns her to the absent sight of his dear perfection. And, and, and you know, she, it returns us to the passion with which she repeats her, her Romeo's name, as she wants to feel the sounds rolling in her mouth. Then we get the final thing about the speech is, of course, its famous thesis, as it were, about names. A rose by any other word would smell as sweet. Now, this can be seen as epitome of Juliet's would-be relationship to the given systems, institutions of her world. It suggests impatience with inherited forms, impatience with false idols, her wish to start from the ground up without mediations or, or prejudice. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face. So be some other name belonging to a man. Now, obviously, names are very important in this play. But dividing name and self is not so easy. Juliet runs through a series of options. Romeo repudiates his father's name, or she hers, or he being named differently, or simply removing his name as something that doesn't belong to him. Most characters of all, she wants to replace his name as a noun with a verb, love. But the signifier, the label by which a person's known, can't just be discarded or replaced. Romeo's name precedes him, makes him a subject, locates him in the community, and a name isn't like a hand or a foot. Romeo could lose his hand or foot and retain his identity. Even, even her argument about the rose is a bit suspect because of all the associations that come with a word. Now, Romeo says at the end, he will take her at her word. And of course, there's a simple meaning here that, she, that he's heard her confess her desire and like a kind of magical genie, he appears to answer her words. It's a beautiful comic moment of meeting. And she says, take all of me, and he can't resist the invitation. He'll give up his name gladly in, any, in exchange. She will give herself to him. And so in some basic way, the exchange is exhilarating and irresistible. But it's also obviously dangerous and unsustainable because if Romeo is her words come true, then as ever, there's a darker implication. If we take the words literally, as I think we always must in Shakespeare, then to take her at her word is also not only to love her, to possess her, and it's certainly this, but it's to take her from herself. So Juliet cannot return from this exchange, not because she will lose her name, but because she cannot lose her name. And so we get these deep ironies, typical Shakespearean ironies, going through the scene when as much as we can move with what, everything she says and endorse it absolutely as an emotional truth, at the same time, it's untrue. This speech comes from Act 3. Romeo and Juliet have just been married, and Juliet is waiting impatiently for the day to end so that she can enjoy her wedding night with Romeo. The image carries echoes of the childhood she is about to leave behind, while the speech as a whole conveys her passionate excitement at coming into adulthood and her newfound sexual identity. Gallop apace, you fiery-footed steeds, towards Phoebus' lodging. Such a wagoner as Phaeton would whip you to the west and bring in cloudy night immediately. 
Spread thy close curtain, love performing night, that runaway's eyes may wink, and Romeo leap to these arms untalked of and unseen. Lovers can see to do their amorous rites by their own beauties, or if love be blind, it best agrees with night. Come, civil night, thou sober-suited matron all in black, and learn me how to lose a winning match played for a pair of stainless maidenhoods. Hood my unmanned blood, batting in my cheeks, with thy black mantle till strange love grow bold. Think true love acted simple modesty. Come, night, come, Romeo, come thou day in night, for thou wilt lie upon the wings of night whiter than new snow upon a raven's back. Come, gentle night, come, loving, black-browed night, give me my Romeo, and when I shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars, and he will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. I have bought the mansion of a love, but not possessed it. And though I am sold, not yet enjoyed. So tedious is this day as is the night before some festival to an impatient child that hath new robes and may not wear them. This is a speech she's making when she's awaiting the night to come and for her marriage to be consummated. Now, the speech is very, very, very often cut, either cut completely or radically shortened. And it still is today because it gives offence. It's not the sort of thing a young girl should think, let alone speak. It's not the sort of thing a romantic heroine should speak. The speech is kind of rip-roaringly hungry. The sexual puns rise thick and fast as though from, you know, it's like suddenly awoken flesh or something. But I think Juliet intends every word. So... Spread thy close curtain, love performing night, that runaways may wink and Romeo leap to these arms untalked of and unseen. Lovers can see to do their amorous rites. So she calls upon night to cover everything so that no one will see them have sex. Equally, the close curtain she longs to spread is her own. She's coming into adulthood piece by piece, looking pitilessly at what she's about to perform about at the maidenhood she said to lose. And she's saying, come. She says the word six times. You know, we, uh, I was saying before that Juliet being 13 makes this moment both monstrous in the sense of a sort of strange possession and, and kind of awesome, precocious or sublime as she's taken over by stuff that dwarfs her education. But as much as she's been taken over here by sexual imagination, as much as every image turns into this delicious obscenity, as much as, you know, every last object in the world is suddenly sexualized, for all of that, we can still hear Juliet speaking. So witness the, the mischievous ironies. She says, runaway's eyes may wink, or her subverting of authority in the lines, come civil night, thou sober-suited matron all in black, and learn me how to lose a winning match played for a pair of stainless maidenhoods. Now, 
she imagines here her old tutor as sober-suited matron as a, a widow in mourning, the sober backdrop to her own youthful intoxication. Lermy had to lose a winning match. It's like she's remembering some pointless game of cards she was taught, suitable for a young lady. And now she wants completely different lessons, different lessons entirely. But in, in her vision, even the old and the forgotten are sort of enfranchised in sexual delight. She says, learn me. Now, that mainly means teach me, but it also implicitly suggests learn from me, as though she and her, her man, will, her boy, will enact a pattern for the universe. She says, give me my Romeo, and when I shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars, and he will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night. Now, this image is at once very simple and promiscuously suggestive. She's saying, give me him. And she produces a scene ecstatically correspondent to the joy she anticipates. It's a world which is sort of exploding with endlessly reconfigured Romeos. Um, I'm thinking maybe images like this and the earlier one of the lightning maybe suggested the endless, the sort of many scenes of fireworks exploding in the night sky in Baz Luhrmann's film. Anyway, it's characteristic that the phrase, when I shall die, the sexual meaning of die is primary rather than dependent or secondary. It means to have sex or not necessarily the female orgasm, but of course it can mean that. So she imagines lying back and seeing the sky aflame with little stars, each each one of them a little fraction or glisten of Romeo. So he's at once gone from her, his essence sort of fissioning into multiplicity and still at her beck and call, like he is throughout the play, at her beck and call, pleasing her as his beauty hangs above her. Take him and cut him out. So Romeo here is at her direction, sort of putty in her hands, or, you know, it's like a child again, so like a, a, a sheet of paper which the, the girl can transform with her craft and her scissors into, into lots of little stars. Now, it's clear that there are sort of death-teasing, demonic, even vampiric shades to Juliet's sexuality. Her alliance with loving, black-browed knight makes her confederacy with the dark side pretty clear. The pun's on dying. She's seeing herself in a lover in the sky. All of these things portend the tragedy to come, but, but it's more presently, this is about desire, and desire that's as far from morbid as anything could be. So she's given here one of Shakespeare's great imaginings of sex. And I think, we, you know, just the, the spaciousness of the image, its deliberation as she directs it to happen and watches, as though she's half out of her own body, the unfolding repetitions, the shapes within shapes, that kind of magical sense of a world slowed down to one's own pulse and then extended beyond normal possibility, this intense wistfulness that wishes the moment longer like she so often does in the play, somehow knowing that it is longer than its actual occurrence, and then maybe even a sort of melancholy anticipation that the boy, having brought her to this little death, will leave. And so, final here, there's something here about which I think goes to the heart of the play. So there's something in Juliet's soliloquy which knows, and the knowledge isn't intellectual knowing, it's more foundational than that, that sex involves congress with animalism, since the insistent hawking and hunting images, that it implies rational as well as physical abandon, that it's jealous and hungry, that it's sort of stupid in the sense of mindless in its multiple abdications, and yet at the same time crafty, and that the eye is always on the target and obstructions are there to be avoided. I like, I like the sense of Juliet thinking about it. She remains this kind of very intelligent person in the moment. 
She's not simply transported out of the moment. She's aware that sex turns the normal world, the everyday world, into a facade, one that presents a false face of propriety and sociality, when in fact the true face is, is what she imagines here, panting, hot, in anguish. That, and importantly, that compulsive punning, like she does here, like McCusey does in his speech, compulsive pun- punning may well be the truest mode of speech, as every single object you see gets turned into a sexual complement or a sexual conspirator. And that our daily life, or not just daily life, but our day life, our daylight life, all dressed and polite and efficient, securely named and essentially anonymous, is just a bleached pretense. And that it cannot rest, or not for long, in a sort of cosy hug. She doesn't want a cosy hug. And that if it's perverse, as as some critics have said, to think of mutilating your lover at the moment of greatest intimacy, it's because sex is constitutionally perverse it takes a different path and finally it's because sex desire rehearses all the final things that we can never else survive shakespeare for all is written and produced by maria devlin mcnair executive producer is zachary davis associate producer and narrator is Gemma deer Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Mark Courtley for Mercutio. Oh, then I see Queen Mab hath been with you. Katie Stevens for Juliet and Romeo. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? And for Juliet, gallop apace, you fiery-footed steeds. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. Emma Smith, This is Shakespeare. Gail Kern-Pastor, Romeo and Juliet, A Modern Perspective. And the following editions of Romeo and Juliet, the 2012 Arden Shakespeare and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can gain access to the full course by going to Himalaya.com slash Shakespeare. Thank you for listening. See you next time.